0: Okay, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, You're back from the cornfields of Iowa. We paid the ransom, and I'm excited to catch up with all your new intel. We also got Trump going bonkers at the G7, and Joe Walsh, formerly Tea Party, now a born-again anti-Trumper, running for president on the Republican side, and the thing that I think we're both raising an eyebrow at, which is whatever happened to the governors running successfully for president? So anyway, a whole bunch of stuff to cover. Tell me, how was Iowa? What What do you think about this Trump G7 madness?
1: Well, Iowa was great. And I I have a whole uh, intel dump for you, uh, which I will get to. But, you know, Trump insists that we speak about him first. Uh, This has been (laughs) an extraordinary couple of weeks and an extraordinary five days. And, you know, just for the erratic nature of his performance and the impact that it's had. You know, when I worked for Obama as a candidate and in the White House... Uh you know he used to joke when he wanted to peel away from the the secret service cordon we put around him and do something else on his own and just spread his legs a little. He used to say, the bear's on the loose and uh and we would joke about that, but we never it was never very rarely did the bear go on the loose when it came to words uh and you know I can't imagine what it's like to work in that trump White House. Uh, from moment to moment, uh, and we really saw it in, in in stark relief in the last couple of days, you know, calling the Fed chair the enemy and calling the Chinese leader the enemy one day and a great leader the next, and just one thing after another. So here's my question for you, brother. If you were sitting there, how do you deal with that uh, in terms of a campaign, and what do you think the impact on the campaign is of of this behavior, which is pretty common, but is becoming more pronounced.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, I have this mental image of the Trump campaign people watching a feed of cable news of him, you know, watching him jerk the stock market around. It's like watching an angry chimp play with a suitcase. You know, he just sits there (laughs) staring at the monitor with a bottle of whiskey and a revolver. Because what can you do? He doesn't take advice and he's crazy. And you know, you're on a roller coaster. You have very little control of. So I think what the political people do is they zero in on the little stuff. You're like, oh, okay, we're going to ramp up the social media or order new office furniture. And, you know, we've both seen this, uh, process, press speculation that they're pumping out about, we're going to widen the map. You know, we're looking at Minnesota. We're going to, we're going to go flip Nevada. We're going to play in all these new places, which which I think is both spin because they have to tell the boss something when he's screaming and yelling about bad polls. And it also gives them something to do every day to work on kind of the grandiose plan to, to, to have a, Plausible theory of reelect, well, the economy, their linchpin starts to crumble, and the president does nothing to make the situation better in fact he 's constantly making their job harder
1: Do you see that story in Vice by the way, where they give him a folder every day of positive news stories and pictures of him yeah. looking commanding? Uh, I guess that 's part of their strategy, but you know here 's the thing: there are two elements of this that I would worry about if I were his strategists. Uh, One is that it gets to the point and people are starting to say, and you've heard me say it here too, which uh, people just get exhausted, that it just gets too burdensome. Even if you like some of the things the guy's done to every day see this turmoil and chaos uh, around him, that would concern me. And the second, of course, and it's the thing that apparently is driving him nuts, is uh, the economy. I mean, he may actually tweet us into... Uh, a recession. But just today, there was a report on how the uh, directors of major corporations are dumping their stock. Uh, in, and that's a very bad foreshadowing, uh, uh, or at least of their, it is an indication of their belief of where all this is going. And, you know, you take the economy away from Trump, he really doesn't have a very good argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's doing remarkably bad with a good economy. And if those numbers flip, and you also know that Trump, at least in the past, has spent those lonely hours in the White House at night dialing people he thinks are his corporate peers. And you know he's hearing nothing but fear and loathing from them. So I'm sure he's vibrating. Which I is think, why I think, by I think, the way,
1: he he, 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 I think that's, sorry to interrupt you. I think that's why he, um, at his press conference in France on Monday, was, you know, subdued in a way. I mean, he was, there was a lot of batshit crazy in what he said and all that, but he was subdued in tone. He tried to reassure on China, uh, you know, even though he apparently made up the fact that there were high-level calls over the weekend. Uh, You know, he tried to do things, even as he was throwing some crazy stuff out there, uh, to calm The water's a little. And that says to me, someone said to him, uh, Sir, uh, we're rocketing out of control here and we need to kind of pull this back because it's impacting on the economy.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the other problem he has is China. You know, he's a guy who will always declare victory after defeat. He would have said at Pearl Harbor, we won because we caused the Japanese so much in aviation, fuel, and torpedoes. And so he's (laughs) going to try that with China. The thing is, the Chinese are now winning the politics of the trade war in the the U.S. They may press their hand for a while to put the message to our political culture that, hey, you know, this is what we can do. So he may not even be able to back off this thing like he thought. So I, I think we got a very nervous very erratic president and you know back to your your initial thought i think the campaign guys are going to spend all their time working on the non-trump part of the campaign which is basically what can they go unload on whoever the democratic nominee is and uh, you know fixing trump i'll bet they've given up hope on that
1: the uh he does have an opponent now uh joe walsh who i i until recently uh, uh thought was the uh lead guitarist for the eagles but uh, he actually is a one-term congressman, uh, and he is a talk show host, uh, very voluble uh, character, but not really a, a serious candidate.
0: Yeah, it's you know, I'm, look, I'm a never-trumper, and I've sent 500 bucks to Bill Weld, but uh, my view on Walsh is, look, I, I don't know about his conversion. Um, If he wants to chase Trump around screaming at him, I'm all for the show. Uh, It'll distract the president, although you can argue that's not such a good thing. The real guy, to the extent that any of these second-tier level people are credible primary opponents, would be Mark Sanford. Because Mark is a guy inside Republican politics for all the mistakes he might have made in his personal life. Trump can't really attack him on that. Mark is one of the real high lanterns of fiscal conservatism in the party. He's been that as a congressman, as a governor. He can come at Trump ideologically on the right on spending, things that resonate to Republicans. Do I think he'd win? No. But I think he would be the interesting challenger from the right should he decide to win. Yeah. Um, but it's a sideshow. And in fact, I'm even a little worried, even though I'm kind of for all these primaries purely to give Trump pain. Trump will start beating these folks. And that that, that can gives Trump wins and wins, as you know, well in politics compound, you know, that's the best thing could happen to Elizabeth Warren. She starts winning. Then the whole idea of being a loser in the general, at least among Democrat primary voters may go away. So I, I think the whole thing is a mixed bag, but I guess it adds to the circus.
1: Joe Lewis had the bum of the month club you know, and he'd beat all these club fighters month after month. Uh, and right. that could be what happens with Trump. We should point out Joe Walsh said when he uh, he was a big supporter of Trump in 2016 and said that if Trump uh, lost, that he would grab his musket. So now apparently he's, uh, he's turning his musket uh, on Trump. I just think you're dealing with a guy in Trump, whatever however much leakage there's been in the Republican Party to independent. You know, he's close to 90 in
0: approval rating. He's going to clean up. I don't think that's where the action is here. People forget the fine print. In primaries, the delegate rules count. And because you guys are all nice and you all cried when old Yeller died, your system's a lot more proportional. Over in the social Darwinist, you know, club of the Republican Party, we have a lot of winner-take-all. So even if you got the miracle 40% against Trump, you're going to get bupkis delegates. So it's just really hard to do. Right.
1: The action really is on the Democratic side, and Joe Walsh got in, but Democrats lost two candidates, both of them governors, uh, John Hickenlooper and Jay Inslee from Colorado and Washington. Uh, there's only one governor left, uh, Steve Bullock of Montana. He's hanging on by his fingernails, and the thing that makes this so noteworthy is it used to be that governors were the go-to people when you were looking for presidential yep. candidates. There were only three Senate. Obama was the third senator in a century Uh, to get elected president JFK and before him, Warren Harding. So
0: what what is it about governors that make them uh, less desirable now? Yeah, you know, it's a real wonderment, as they say, because you're right. The model was the governor could go be the non-Washington candidate, had executive experience and a story. And so you had so many of them. They they were the naturals in these presidential primaries. And even more ironically, poor Bullock, who, as you say, is hanging on by a thread, On paper, he's the candidate right now that gives the Republican campaign managers the biggest heart attack because they see him in a general election against Trump beating Trump like a government mule, just wiping him out. Yet he's barely in the Democratic race. And so I the only crazy theory I've got is in the new era of cable TV and social media. Being a Washington player gives you so much attention that it is a big name ID advantage early. You know, I did a little study of this when I worked for a long shot, Lamar Alexander for president in 95. And we looked at the history in the 70s and 80s of presidential races. And at the beginning... It was always the Washington senators who got all the press because the Beltway press would cover them like the, you know, Birch Bayh, unstoppable potential candidate for president. And then they'd melt away to a governor. But in the new era, being in that D.C. media machine may be the golden ticket and it forces the governors out.
1: Yeah, that is, I think, largely true. And it's amplified by the fact that uh, these new debate rules that the Democratic Party has set up require you. To be a social media candidate, you have to have, for example, to get into this next debate, hundred thirty thousand unique yep. uh, donors, uh, uh, small donors, and uh, and you need uh, you know at least two percent in the polls. This is what drove Hickenlooper and Inslee out because they weren't going to make the debate stage and many others aren't the one thing that is noteworthy though uh, kind of an aberration here to the theory is Pete Buttigieg i mean here you've got the mayor of a small town in indiana uh who is the number one fundraiser uh among democrats i think part of it is that he's pulling in a lot of money uh large donations from uh the the gay community around the country but uh, but he also has a boatload of small donors. And uh, yep. so he kind of defies, defies the theory. And what it says is uh, you can navigate around this if you, uh, if you can create your own kind of wave uh, by using the cable television, by using social media effectively, which, which the governors who dropped out uh, did not. So I went to Iowa, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, for my CNN show, which was on, uh, which was on Saturday night, you know, it was really, really interesting, because the picture there, it's, it's later there than it is elsewhere, you've had 3000 candidate visits already, you'll probably have 3000 more uh, before it's done, and people are beginning to frame uh, their, uh, their views. And uh, so, Uh, You know, I had a chance to spend time with a whole bunch of candidates, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I wanted to play some sound from that journey and then talk about uh, what we heard. The first thing I want to talk about is this very interesting issue of Medicare for All, which is, you know, wildly popular until you introduce the issue of people having to give up their private insurance and the unavailability of private insurance, I spoke with both uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who both, you know, Warren has endorsed Bernie's legislation on this, uh, and I asked them about the blowback that they're getting from this, and they answered in distinctly uh, different ways. So let's take a listen to uh, first to Elizabeth uh, Warren on this issue. There is quite a bit of skepticism, not about the idea of Medicare for all, but about the idea of doing away with private insurance, uh-huh. does that affect your thinking?
2: Sure it does. And it tells me that the transition is really important. As we negotiate the pieces to get there to a system that is sustainable, we've got to make sure that we've got everybody at the table, that labor unions are at the table and that they're getting full compensation. So, yeah, there are a lot of pieces to get this right, but you start by setting the goal and then aiming toward it.
1: So really interesting, because she, it seems to me, she was hedging, and and wisely so. She was saying, don't be scared. We're not going to rush into this. We're not going to do anything crazy. Uh, And, you know, this has been, to me, a hallmark that people have missed of the Warren campaign, which is, It's very well conceived and very strategically sound. And I think this is strategically sound. She wants to keep the left on board. She wants to compete with Bernie for that vote. But she's leaving enough room for herself uh, to move when the charge comes that she's a socialist and that she's too extreme and so on.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because whenever I get cranked up on the 30 to 40% of Republicans that are uncomfortable with Trump, you always tell me I'm crazy. Well, on this one, I think you're crazy because she can add a few adverbs that we're going to have to sit at the table. You know, labor, if they're giving up private health insurance, they're going to want one hell of a good chair at that table. Better be pretty comfortable. Um, But this is such a big thing. You're either for it or against it. And I think splitting hairs. Well, I get why she's doing it, and I agree they're strategically adroit. I, I don't think it's going to be much of an escape route. Uh, I think you're, you're either for it, if it's the system we ought to have, you go fight the corner like she's been doing, or you're against it, which is the space nobody's really taken yet in the Democratic Party, maybe Biden. The Republicans are going to pound this into applesauce in the general election, and I think subtleties are, are, are not going to be much of an escape route.
1: Yeah, I think subtleties are, uh, in the beginning of the primary process, are a foreshadowing of uh, of more su- substantial moves. Uh, and I suspect that she will. You may be right, but uh, w- it was interesting to me that she didn't push back harder on me. Yeah, that's true. Uh, she was having a note signal. That the night, that's the, totally right. The, 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 and the night before I asked her about uh, the, the night before a town hall meeting there, she was. Uh, she got a very tough— Question from someone uh, there on this issue of private insurance. So the question was in the context of, is she impacted by the voices that she hears in Iowa? But let's listen to Bernie, uh, who has a distinctly different answer to the same question. Do you think that these older voters are more averse to kind of the seismic changes that you've talked about, including Medicare for All?
0: You know what? What is seismic is that 87 million Americans today are either uninsured or underinsured. Do You want seismic? Half a million people are going to go bankrupt this year because of medical bills they can't afford to pay. 30,000 people died. What is not seismic, in my view, is taking a popular program,
2: Medicare, which is the most popular health insurance program, which now is uh, people 65 years of age and older are eligible for. First year, lower it to 55 then to 45, then to 35, over a four-year period, make sure that everybody in this country has Medicare and comprehensive health care. Honest to God, I don't think that that is all that seismic, all that complicated, all that difficult.
0: Yeah, he's uh, full speed ahead. You know, he means
1: it. And that is why, you know, he retains a very, very loyal core of supporters. Uh, I mean, he is a true believer he is unyielding uh in his uh belief and that and he is authentic i mean he authentically embraces uh these views and he's held them as he pointed out to me for decades and decades. I was kind enough not to say half a century uh but um but but that is uh that is uh really um You know, that is why he is going to hang around in this race from the beginning to end. I don't know if he can grow his base. I have some doubts about that, but I also don't think he's going away. So Joe Biden, uh, who, you know, uh, interestingly has a lot of affection and respect in Iowa. He's leading in the polls marginally there, uh, but not a great deal of enthusiasm. He, as we pointed out last week, has started his advertising campaign Uh, There And today uh, he launched a a new ad that wades right into this issue of health care and mixes in with his biography. So let's listen to that.
2: I was sworn into the United States Senate next to a hospital bed. My wife and daughter had been killed in a car crash. Lying in that bed were my two surviving little boys. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have the health care they needed immediately. 40 years later, one of those little boys, my son Bo, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given only months to live. I can't fathom what would have happened if the insurance companies had said for the last six months of his life, you're on your own. The fact of the matter is, health care is personal to me. Obamacare is personal to me. When I see the president try to tear it down and others propose to replace it and start over, that's personal to me, too. We got to build on what we did because every American deserves affordable health care. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message.
0: You know, I watched that this morning, and I wanted to like it more than I did. I mean, I get the strategy. I think they're trying to buttress his moral high ground on health care so we can go tangle with Elizabeth Warren on Medicaid for all at the debate in Houston on the 12th. But I don't know. Creatively, I thought... It lacked some subtlety where a little less might have been a little more. But, you know, we're we'll C. We're we'll C. It's a big card for them, and they played it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, it is not a subtle ad. And he he really plays some of, uh, you know, some cards here that are very, very big in his uh, appeal. Um, and I don't want to cheapen it that way because I have huge um, regard for, for what he and his family have been through. But so do voters, and they understand what he has suffered through, and it gives him a sense of empathy. It project, he projects a sense of empathy that is a big, big uh, appeal uh, to voters. Secondly, it, it underscores the uh, Obama connection, which is another big uh, appeal to voters. Uh, and the third is it does set up this debate over healthcare, care, although not as overtly uh, as he's going to have to, if he wants to uh, make it work for him. So I, I, I have to agree with you on execution, but I have to, Mike, you and I were in this business for a long time. Don't you think an ad of this um, magnitude uh, would be tested before they put it on the air? By the way, this went up in Iowa, is my understanding, and he does need to jumpstart himself there. He's a weak front runner right now, and he's trying to generate some enthusiasm there.
0: Yeah, I think they must have tested it, but it's one of these things where you always assume the same thing, but you don't know the internal campaign dynamic. You know, the the other point you made that I agree with, but it raises a question for me, he played the Obama card, which is one of the strongest things he has. But the more he plays that, I think the more it ramps up pressure for at least some utterances of warmth that come out of Obamaland, you know, because he's, he's weighing in of Superman, but Superman's been quite silent. doesn't have to be a full endorsement, but he's kind of raising the stakes there, I think, for the former president. That'll, that, we'll see how that rolls out, because after a while, the silence will become pretty deafening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really don't anticipate uh, President Obama weighing in anytime soon. Uh, on this race. So if that's the motivation, uh, it's wrong. I think he's trying to get the benefit of an Obama endorsement without the endorsement.
0: Yeah, it was funny. You know, back in the uh, primary in 88, I worked for Bob Dole uh, against uh, President Bush back then. Later, Jim Baker brought uh, me onto the Bush team. But we had this hilarious auction going on because Re- President Reagan would not endorse his vice president, uh, George W. Bush. It's excuse me, George H.W. Bush. Even I get it confused. So I remember spending two days at CBS in New York going through the pool camera footage to find a fundraiser where Reagan said nice stuff about Dole, which we found. We made a spot. And we, we had this kind of proxy war, uh, which Bush won in the end because he had the association and Reagan never endorsed him and it was enough. But it was a bit awkward. And that, that could be where it lands for Biden, too. We'll see.
1: So uh, another uh, candidate I spoke with is Pete Buttigieg, uh, and he said something that caught my ear. Let's, let's listen to
0: this. Uh, I believe as much as anybody or more that we do need big and bold and transformative change. I also think that how bold you are is not always the exact same thing as how left you are.
1: So I thought that was pretty interesting because to me, you, if you think people are positioning themselves before the debate, that and this was as a pre- preface to discussing why he's not for Medicare for all. Uh, you know, y- y- this could be a uh, this could be a-, a precursor of what we're going to see on the debate stage. And frankly, Buttigieg needs to do something here because he is he is uh, he he plateaued and now he's kind of sinking back. And while I yeah. saw signs of energy for his campaign in Iowa, he needs to define himself as more than just the new generation candidate. He needs to enter this debate, uh, you know, of, 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 of pragmatism versus uh, the left. And um, this was the first indication I saw that perhaps he's inching in that direction.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. He badly needs a gear shift. He got himself into the race, but he has more to do. You know, I don't know. I'm torn— because I think Buttigieg has the smart guy problem, which he's very lucid. He makes impressive points. He's clearly a very smart guy. But he can go to too clever by half really quickly. And it's one of these things where, well, if you like Medicare for all, you can have it. But if you don't, you don't have to. Tastes great, less filling. Everybody's happy. Vote for Pete. And, you know, Bernie is going to come flying back at him with, wait a minute. If If it's the right thing, then everybody should have it. And you don't need a choice. You know, even Warren could, if she leaves these breadcrumbs around, give Bernie an opportunity to grind in. It's a, it's the right thing. You're for it or against it, and try to make it a black and white contrast on the issue a little bit. So these, these kind of, you know, this clever stuff, I, I, I get it. And he is trying to leave the trap door. But sometimes the trap door can become a pretty big story, and it starts to look cynical. And uh, I don't know. I, I think, I think there's an opening for a purist like Bernie now to actually go on the offensive.
1: I actually think that he was first the, one of the first, I think he may have been the first to come out with a Medicare uh, for all who want it uh, plan, which is another, it's another way of saying there's a public option that you can buy into uh, if you want to. And uh, that is a very popular uh, position. And if he leans into it, I think he can profit What's interesting to me is, like, I watched him in the last few debates. He was very, very good, I thought. But he looked like a guy who was holding a town hall meeting with a bunch of people standing around him and not (laughs) really interacting with the others on the stage. He can't afford to do that this time. And this may be a precursor of that. I also spoke to Kamala Harris, and she's always been intriguing to me in this race because she there is a there is a a kind of electricity to her an appeal and I saw it when I was in Iowa. I saw how she interacted with people. I saw how they reacted to her. She tends to be in the mix when people talk about their the three or four or five candidates that they're looking at, and that's how Iowans view this thing and they're really waiting for her to put it to put the message piece together to, to they want her to be who they want who who they want to be, uh, but she needs to put her message together and um, in my mind, uh, this part of her message that we're about to hear has a tremendous possibilities.
3: What I can tell you is it's a lived experience for me to know how much more we have in common than what separates us. What we're getting out of Donald Trump is not reflective of who we are by nature and who we are in terms of our aspirations and ideals. But the other thing I'd say about it is this, David. This guy came in making a whole lot of promises to working people and he betrayed them. Passing so-called trade policy by tweet in, in, with unilateral gestures that I would say are born out of a fragile ego and have resulted in farmers here in Iowa looking at bankruptcy and and soybeans rotting in bins. People want a problem-solving president and someone who can unify the country, yes. And And I, it is part of my mission to speak to our better angels and to speak to who we really are. I know who we are, and we are so much better than this.
0: You know, it's funny when she's good, she sparkles. And this message of Trump has not delivered anything he promised, where's the infrastructure deal, where's the fantastic trade deals, not the trade pain, etc. I agree, has power in its a space somebody should grab. Her problem is she's so uneven. She's either hitting triples or striking out. Um, And can she sustain can she lock something like this and consistently put in a good performance or will we have kind of the high lows like we had with the debates? The California Democratic hacks that I bump into out here are bizarrely hostile to her. And I don't know if that's old tribal fighting between the Diane people and the boxer people and the Pelosi people and her in the cauldron of San Francisco Bay Area politics. But it is interesting to me that way they know her best in the inside game. There's not a lot of love for her, but her talent is there. And so she's really a mixed bag to me. If She's going to be able to perform at the level that would move her forward.
1: I think she would say the core of her message uh, is, you know, I'm the president who's going to deal with the things that keep you up at 3 a.m. And uh, and I just find that to be kind of a synthetic, kind of generic democratic message. Whereas I do think people are looking for someone who is going to calm the waters, who is going to be more of a unifying figure, who... Uh, is not going to wake up every day. Uh, thinking about how they can divide the country, and she could be that candidate, but she would really need to lean in and embrace. it. And as you point out, she she needs to do it consistently because, uh, you know what we've seen is she's had a she has a great day, and the next day she she doesn't, and she contradicts the the message of the day before, and that is a killer in in presidential races so you know when i went to iowa i uh i took with me uh, a guy named paul twos i don't know if you know paul but he is a longtime democratic organizer he you know when we started the obama campaign he was the guy we called to ask to run iowa he had run iowa for al gore in 2000 against bill bradley uh, and he came and he ran a brilliant campaign for us he understands the caucus process as well as anyone. And he had an interesting observation, so I wanted to play this for you.
0: There's an adage in the Iowa caucuses, organize, organize, and get hot late. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this timing of it all that, yeah. you know, you don't want to peak too soon, you don't want to peak too late. And, you know, with Obama, I always felt like it was a marathon, at a sprinter's pace.
1: By the way, I should mention the woman's voice you heard in there was that of Sue Dvorsky, a former state chair in Iowa, who also tagged along with us uh, on our travels
0: through the state. A pair of old pros really know that state well. Yep. You know, it's why these national polls are much more of a hint than an insight, because we both know those last four weeks in Iowa, you know, after inflection points, after the I guess we're not allowed to say J.J. J. dinner anymore, whatever it is now, the wake dinner, the woke dinner, but there's a thing that goes off and you're right. And then something big happens. And that is the big question. We don't know what that'll be yet, but it's it, something big will happen at the end and shake the race.
1: So my impression, just to sum up my trip to Iowa is that uh, you know Biden is the front runner, uh, but uh, Warren is super well organized she got there early she's got the best organization everybody seems to feel that way that's not insignificant in a race that's largely mm-hmm. marginal or or that's that's going to be marginal and in a caucus where uh, you know you are bringing asking people to come out on a cold snowy night and uh, declare their preferences in front of their neighbors and that that is a commitment and you need to have a relationship with these people and make sure that they come out so organization Uh, means a lot. Bernie has his core, and I don't think the core is going to go away. I don't know how much he can grow it. Uh, uh, And then uh, Harris and Buttigieg have potential. They're clearly connecting. But, you know, you have to turn that connection into commitment. That involves organization. She had a big showing at this thing called the Wingding, which is a Oh, sure. cattle call for candidates up in northern Iowa in the surf ballroom where Buddy Holly had his last concert. And um, and she had quite uh, Harris had quite a throng there, which says to me she's got something going organizationally. Um, But, uh, you know, they they have potential to be part of this. And the other guy who has a great organization there but just hasn't caught fire is Cory Booker. Um, I would be shocked if the top three didn't include some uh, that group, uh, you know, someone, some one group of people, smaller subset of that six. It's going to be hard for other people to break through, I think. But uh, as yeah. Paul said, you know, you got to get hot late and we'll see who that is.
0: No, look, I totally agree with the analysis. I think Corey is a performer. If there's somebody who will have the lightning bolt, it might be him. And the the last Factor that turned out not to be a factor, and, you know, you can't rule anything out permanently, but Amy Klobuchar should have been a player in Iowa at this point. And it just hasn't yeah. happened. I think it's the case study of when you try to run a risk-free campaign at 2 percent, you stay at 2 percent.
1: Yeah, I spoke with her about that as well uh, for this CNN show. And, uh, you know, she said, well, I'm in, you know, I'm in sixth place. But she's at 3 percent. Uh, and, uh, as I pointed out to her, no one, no one at, you know, no one ever chants, we're number six, you know, (laughs) so she's got a lot of work. She's got a lot of work to do. And I do think that her unwillingness to, uh, you know, frontally challenge, she wants to be the moderate candidate in the race, but she is unwilling to challenge uh, some of her colleagues on a debate stage, uh, didn't do it last time. Uh, and if she doesn't do it the next time, I think, uh, you know, she is going to uh, doom herself here. And for uh, folks who want to hear some of that uh, CNN show uh, and some additional material, including a, a long conversation I had with Iowa voters, you can uh, check into my Axe Files podcast uh, on Luminaries. So um, really, really interesting
0: insights uh, from the folks who are going to make the decision. Let's pretend for a minute you're at Davos, the international hotspot of world business leaders, and somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, you were a presidential advisor. What would Bill Gates say were the books that he would have read if he had a time machine and went back to he was 15 years old? It would be good to have an answer to that. Well, that's what Quartz is all about, because it is the new site founded in 2012 for a whole new kind of business leaders, and they actually did a story only on Quartz about the books that Bill Gates would have read if he were 15. It's all about creative, intelligent journalism, and of course, as one of our sponsors, we want to tell you all about them and their coverage of the global economy.
1: Yeah, they also did a great piece uh, that I saw on elect, the electric battery race. And this was something that we talked about in the White House, that uh, the country, this is going to be increasingly important in the era of global uh, warming, of climate change. Battery technology for cars to turn them into electric cars. And they talked about that whole race. It is a
0: really, really interesting place to go. It's membership-based, so if you get a membership, we're going to tell you about that in a minute with a special offer for our listeners. The membership package includes field guides to the most disruptive forces in business, video tutorials on the essential skills of modern executives, and other special member-exclusive journalism, plus a direct relationship with our journalists, their insights, and their obsessions. You can even dial into the newsroom during special conference calls for a behind-the-scenes look and briefing from these very wired journalists that work at court. Horts.
1: Horts is offering our listeners 25% off your first year of membership. Just go to QZ.com, click become a member, and enter our code HACKS.
0: That's QZ.com, click Become a member, special button, and then use that magic 25% off key, the promo code that all America wants, Hacks. And guess what? There's a guide to the CBD boom coming up, and I'll be personally looking into that to prepare for some field experiences. Uh, well, hey, we got a huge mailbag. If you want to send us mailbag information or questions or comments, you can do it at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. So, Axe, let's go to this mailbag. We have so many nice comments. So first, we should thank everybody for that. So our first mailbag question today is from Susan, which is... I love listening to your show, thank you, Susan, but I'm a bit tired of hearing Republicans, also in the New York Times and the Washington Post, who don't like Trump telling Democrats who we should nominate to run for president. Why should Republicans be telling Democrats who to nominate? Republicans nominated Trump. Why should we trust the judgment of Republicans? Democrats beat Trump by nearly 3 million votes. We wiped out many Republicans in the House in 2018, including in many, quote, safe Republican districts, we kicked out Republican governors, we won state houses, we won big in Michigan all the way down the ballot, all without Republican votes. In sincerity, I just don't get why Republicans are so sure that we need them to win. What's the rationale for that reasoning, Axe? Well, first of all, we should
1: point out that she made a, a point. It was a lengthier question of saying she was not attacking Mike Murphy here. And I want to know why she doesn't want to attack Mike Murphy. Yeah, I, I deserve It's fine to it. attack Mike Murphy. <laughs> exactly, but uh, I, I would look, uh, the truth is, yes, Democrats did have a big uh, a big day last uh, November in the midterms, and they won seats in 30 or more uh, districts that uh, Trump carried. Uh, but they did that in part by bringing over some people who had voted for Trump or another candidate other than Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016. And in these battleground states, Uh, Which are going to be competitive again. Uh, The margin of difference may be that four or five percent who come across uh, and uh, vote for the Democrat nominee because they can't uh, abide Trump. Uh, there's ample research to suggest that a base-only strategy uh, is not necessarily a winning strategy for Democrats because of the Electoral College. And I also don't think it's a good governing strategy uh, for Democrats. Trump has the uh, divide, uh, you know, win by dividing Uh, strategy. It's been awful for the country. And I don't think it's going to be good for him politically in the long run. I don't think it's good for uh, Democrats either. And I'm not a Republican and I am uh, that that is my analysis. Uh, So I I agree that you don't have to you don't have to frame your I don't care about pleasing Mike Murphy or uh, some of these uh, apostate Republicans who have uh, no home here. That's not the point. The point is to have a message that's broad enough uh,
0: to win the election. Hallelujah. I couldn't agree more. Susan, you got to remember, it's not a two-team sport. There are three teams in politics, hardcore Republicans, hardcore Democrats, and teams. It's a team of people who switch back and forth. Those Michigan wins you were talking about in the midterms, Republicans were peeling off and not voting Republican. That's how the Gretchen Whitmers of the world win. They get the the independents who tend to ticket split back and forth, and they peel off a few Republicans. So the Republicans shouldn't dictate anything But if you run a candidate who's only attractive to Democratic primary voters, you run a huge risk of four more years of the orange menace. So, Murphy,
1: Maggie writes, why does the mainstream media focus almost exclusively on national polls for the Democratic primary? We don't vote that way, and early state polls are much more telling and much closer than the national ones. And is this a network decision or the pundits? Basically, how much control do the pundits have over their own shows?
0: Well, the mainstream media loves polling because it gives you an easy story, a winner and a loser. In fact, when a media outlet conducts a poll, it's one of the only circumstances where the media outlet will go make the news and then report on it. Here's the thing on national polls. They mean a lot more after the voting starts in the primaries. So they don't predict too well. They give you a great idea what happened last week, kind of what the noise meter of political news is telling people that you poll. But they are... A hint, a whiff. They tell you something about what's going out there in the greater consciousness as people keep getting new information during the campaign, so they're useful. They're just not that predictive till the states start voting. So if you want to really follow the race, I agree. Focus on credible state polls and then watch the national polls follow. The media, they can't help themselves. It's an easy, fun story, and there is some insight there, so it is news. Yeah, I also think, uh, just
1: to augment Maggie's point, uh, not only are they misleading because we are, it is, as I said earlier, a sequential process, but uh, they also uh, become a substitute for good reporting. So uh, people, you know, you could have two polls on the same day saying entirely different things. I heard a guy from Monmouth yesterday who says the presidential race is now a three-way tie, comment on a CNN poll that showed Biden widening his uh, margin. So he plummeted in one poll, he r- rose precipitously in the other. And this guy said, well, it's just what I'm saying. There's a lot of volatility here.
0: Yeah, if I was head of Red Chinese Intelligence, I'd start bribing national pollers, polling uh, firms because you can jerk uh, Beltway politics around tremendously with the daily poll of the minute. Sometimes people overreact to just the margin of error, which, you know, is a couple of points. Hey, here's a question from Amy to wrap up this week's mailbag. A great question. It bubbled to the top despite all the other great questions because she writes, I greatly enjoy your podcast, et cetera. Thank you, Amy. While always appreciative of the insight into politics— I'm wondering what your favorite beers are these days. Axe, you take it first.
1: Uh, I would have to say in loyalty to my hometown that uh, my favorite beer is uh, 312 from the Goose Island Brewery in, in Chicago.
0: Mm, that is good stuff. I will say in loyalty to my gene code that Guinness in the can with the little nitrogen thing. I don't like it in the bottle, but in the can, it's just like draft. It's really good. Close runner-up, Suprema, a hard-to-get beer from El Salvador that you can find out here in L.A. is excellent. So that is the winner of the beer poll this week. Attention beer sponsors for the right sum of money. Uh, we've always found your beer interesting, too. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. That was the question of the year, and uh, to those of you at home, have, have a good beverage in and then go on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice and give us a rating. Those really, really help spread the news of Hacks on Tap to new listeners. And we're all about letting people know we're out here and we hope you continue to enjoy what we're doing. Now, we, we've had a few of our favorite beers and it's time to go to last call. Axe, what do you got?
1: I saw a story, a story this morning about uh, you know, a morning consult has a poll out showing Trump uh, deeply underwater in some of the states that he had to win or has to win in order to, uh, to get a second term, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, and others. And in the story, they repeat what we've heard from, uh, from his campaign through other sources that they're focused on trying to enlarge the playing field to, uh, New Mexico, Nevada, um, Minnesota, New Hampshire, uh, I'm really, really dubious about that. I mean, it may be a strategy born of necessity because they see themselves going down in the states that gave Trump the presidency in the first place. But if they're relying on those states to deliver uh, for him this year, I think they've got a big problem.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty phony baloney. I mean, Minnesota is always interesting, but we never quite get there. And uh, the data is the data. People want to fire Trump. The question is, will the Democrats help him change the subject? And that we will find out. Uh, My last call is just a quick remembrance. It's the one-year anniversary of the passing of my old friend and former boss, Senator John S. McCain. Uh, I hope his ghost is haunting a few Republican members of the House and Senate, more than a few, actually, because McCain was never afraid to scrap and he was never afraid to take political risks for the right thing. And as we have a president of the United States who is literally unscrewing his Head in live action, embarrassing us at a summit where now apparently Vladimir Putin was able to run the G7 without even being there, having been punished for his invasion uh, of Crimea, and now may be invited back next year. Um, Come on, Republicans. There was a time when we were Republicans and we knew what to do about pushy Russians. We knew what to do about spending and other things. Let your inner McCain loose. Go out. Scrap. Tell the truth. The country first, remember? That's why we signed up for this stuff. What would John McCain do? That is a question every Republican elected official ought to be asking himself this week as the president continues this this declining, dangerous, and unsettling behavior. Amen, brother. I'll see you next week. All right, pal. See you.